Welcome to this podcast from the Royal College of Anesthetists. My name is Dr. Anna Maria Rollin. I'm a retired consultant anesthetist and I currently chair the Heritage and Archives Committee at the college. This is one of a series of podcasts in which we look at the heritage of the Royal College of Anesthetists and the history of anesthesia. In this episode, we are discussing the early history of the British anesthetic journals from 1923 until the end of the Second World War. I'm delighted to be joined by David Bogard and Eleanor Shaw. Many of you will know David, who is a retired consultant anaesthetist. He started as an editor in anaesthesia of, or, or of anaesthesia in 1995 and became editor-in-chief in 2003, a post he held until 2009. He has also chaired the editorial board of the International Journal of Obstetric Anesthesia. Uh, he was a board member of the British Journal of Anesthesia, and he chaired the British Journal of Anesthesia, Royal College of Anesthetists Liaison Committee. Eleanor Shaw is a PhD candidate at the University of Manchester. Her PhD looks at the history of the British Journal of Anesthesia, exploring the development of academic journal publishing, the journal's relationship with the anesthetic community itself, and the impact of the changes in that relationship on the research that the journal funded and published. Before beginning her PhD, she worked in health and, and development in both the United Kingdom and around the globe. David and Eleanor, welcome to you both. Thanks um, so much. Thanks for very me. much for having us, Maria. Uh, um, lovely to see you both here. And uh, what a fascinating topic. Eleanor, thank you very much for picking up on this. I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation. So off you go, David, Eleanor. Great. So um, with the story probably starts in 1923 with the foundation of the BJA. Um, and of course, at this time, the interesting thing is that there were so many scientific journals, you know, the sort of latter part of the 1800s and early 1900s, there was absolutely no shortage of scientific and medical journals. The only problem was they tended not to last very long. Um, so what's interesting about the BJA for me is that it uh, is now having its centenary year in 2023, and it was one of the, one of the ones that did last. Um, so in those early days of uh, the BJA, it really was a mouthpiece for the anesthesia community. You know, this is before the existence of the association. Um, and so it really did take on a, a role as, um, as a, a representative of the anesthesia community. And I think often the history of anesthesia has been told in this, what historians call teleological way, which suggests that, you know, it's rising to its current position was uh, inevitable in some ways. So, you know, you, you start with the discovery of anesthesia, the introduction into clinical practice, and then sort of plod on merrily until you become the largest specialty. And actually, the, what the history of the journal shows is that that really wasn't inevitable at all. Um, and that there were many struggles along the way that were not destined to turn out uh, so well. So just to paint a picture for you of what was happening in the 1920s with anaesthetists, of course, this is before the NHS. 
you had to have a private practice to earn any money because the hospitals, in fact, would not pay you. So if you had an appointment at a hospital as an anaesthetist, that wasn't a paid position. Um, and so you really had no way of earning money. And so one of the things that the BJA really took to task was this really difficult financial situation for so many anaesthetists. Now, of course, quite a lot of them had other forms of income. You know, some of them were independently wealthy, but there were others who were not. And in fact, one of the uh, articles in the early BJA that's really interesting to me is that one of the anaesthetists that was part of the London community did commit suicide because he had such severe financial problems. Um, and the BJA was very outspoken in the time, that, in the way that they were in the 1920s um, about this issue and really did advocate not just for improvements in um, the well-being of anaesthetists in regular editorials and in the um, what's it called, the discussion column. Um, but they also were really agitating for the foundation of an association because they knew that there needed to be a body um, who would represent the interests of anaesthetists. And they, and they took that really seriously. And their first editor, Hyman Morris Cohen, um, he was very active. You know, he would go around to the various societies and say, we desperately, desperately need an association because you know, anaesthetists are not doing well. There's horrible working conditions, terrible pay. Um, and so they actually were really essential in advocating for the foundation of the association. So then of course we get the foundation of the association and there begins the long and complex relationship <laughs> between the various anesthesia bodies. But I think it's just so interesting and, and perhaps a kind of history that many people don't know um, is that actually the BJA was there at the beginning saying we desperately need this association. So actually, uh, yeah, they are really closely interlinked in a way that might not be obvious um, now. Uh, interesting, isn't it? And they were clearly, uh, uh, the BJA uh, sort of, you know, uh, ended up uh, promoting the formation of an organisation which itself then promoted a journal. Uh, which has come to be the BJA's biggest rival. Uh, uh, not not Turkey's voting for Christmas, but certainly you get a feel of that. But of course, the profession is much stronger in the UK for having both the bodies and both the journals as well, both of which have an international reputation. Yeah, absolutely. And that idea of competition was something that you can really trace back actually to the very beginning of the foundation of anesthesia at the journal. So what happened with the BJA is the original editor died quite suddenly. Um, and it's, it's unclear exactly what happened, but it is clear that some kind of dispute between Blomfield, who was the second editor, and uh, Hyman Morris Cohen's widow arose. Um, and it seems that the widow, Mrs. Cohen, felt that she uh, was entitled to ownership of the journal. Now, of course, this all arose because of the completely unclear legal situation of the journal. You know, they had just sort of conjured it up. They had a printer. It was a cottage industry. You know, it seems to have been bankrolled in its early years by the pocketbooks of its editors. And, you know, occasionally they get paid back for things, but not always. Um, and so this, who, you know, who exactly did the journal belong to? Who, you know, who's, who was it? What was its legal status was completely unclear. 
And in fact, Blomfield at various points told everybody that he thought it was best to have nothing further to do with the journal, to leave it to Mrs. Cohen and start again entirely afresh. And his suggestion, uh, which is unsurprising when you realize that he was president of the association at this time, was that a new journal should be founded uh, through the auspices of the association. It's not clear whether he was just, um, you know, being hyperbolic, because then they did manage to come to some agreement with Mrs. Cohen. She, you know, gave up her legal right to the journal. Crucially, she had the list of subscribers in her house and refused to give them up, which was very sensible, I think, personally. Um, so, yeah, without the list of subscribers, which she was holding on to, the journal had no one to send itself to. But they do eventually manage to come to some kind of agreement with her. Um, and so the BJA continues. But I think it really, you know, you can trace back this idea that the association should have its own journal, certainly to this point, if not before. And of course, interestingly, it's both the, the editor of the BJA and the president of the association, which is the same person suggesting that, in fact, the association should have its own journal. And then, you know, I was just going to say this this crossover between yeah, the yeah, the president of organizations and the editor in chief ship of journals. I, I mean, it's still, you know, it, it still does happen, astonishingly. And the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology had this precise issue, I guess, about uh, 15, 20 years back. No, yeah, about 20 years back now. Uh, and got into all sorts of trouble as a result of it. The president of the Royal College was also the editor-in-chief of the journal and got involved in a scandal relating to publication of some false data and a false case report. And the ramifications of that were absolutely huge. Yeah, I mean, I think you do expect to find it in the 30s and 40s, for example, where it's not just the association and the journal, it's the Royal College, it's, you know, all of the other bodies, um, that it's the same sort of 10 to 12 people and they just sort of rotate round every 10 years and spend their entire careers. But yes, the, the amount of change that we've seen on that is not, not as radical as perhaps we might do. Exactly. No, yeah. and it talks about, doesn't it, the relationship between the journal and the organisation that either owns it or at least is responsible for most of the people who read it. And, and that's a, it can be a fine distinction whether an organisation owns a journal or not. And there's a lot of lawyers in places like Oxford, particularly, who, who, who spend a lot of time dealing with issues of who actually owns a journal. Exactly. And that's the BJA is genuinely unusual in that it, you know, was owned by nobody. It was associated with nobody, you know, very late in the day. It does become, of course, the official journal of the Royal College of Anaesthetists. But before that, it was not uh, associated in any formal capacity to any other organisation, um, which is genuinely unusual. You know, if you look at all of the other um, medical and, and scientific journals, that is genuinely unusual. Um, so, you, you know, they, they sort of overcome these uh, interesting legal difficulties and plod on. And then World War II happens. And I think 
really the way that the history of anesthesia in World War II has been generally told up until now is, you know, is a, a source of great opportunity. And that absolutely is the case. But if you actually go back to what was happening at the time um, and you read, there's a, a huge book that's got this blue cover and it's sort of the report of um, all of the medical chiefs, you know, the people who are responsible both for medicine and the armed forces, the Navy, um, the RAF and the army. And if you actually look at what was happening with, with anesthesia, the, the constraints of the war on anesthetic practice meant that in some places, phenomenal strides were being made, you know, in terms of anesthetic practice. But if you were on a Royal Navy ship, you had one, you know, you had one surgeon who may or may not be trained in anesthesia, who was responsible for the entire ship. He didn't have many of the common anesthetic agents at the time because they were flammable or they just were not safe for at sea. So simultaneously, you have actually a real regression in what's available. You know, the Royal Navy really is the particular example in this case for um, a real lack of just basic access to anesthesia, what you did have access to was certainly not deemed, you know, the cutting edge. And so I do think that we need a, a conversation broadly about the history of anesthesia that acknowledges, you know, it wasn't just this wonderful time of fantastic opportunity that actually the war really posed phenomenal challenges. And where that's relevant to the journals is that it's my argument and my understanding that if you have a network of anaesthetists all around the world who all exchange practice and all read each other's journals and all talk to each other all the time. That is really where um, these changes in practice, these changes in scientific understanding originate. And what happens during the war, of course, as we all know, is that these lines of communication really get shut down. You know, letters are not getting through, they're being censored. Journals are all shutting down. If you look at the list, of anesthesia journals that existed in Europe um, on the eve of World War II. For obvious reasons, the German ones go, the French ones go, the Italian ones go. And so it's really a shutting down of these networks of knowledge that were so essential in the pre-war period to exchanging anesthesia knowledge. And, and so I think, you know, Yes, we can talk about practice, but as we all know, a profession is so much more than that. It's not just what's happening in practice. It's really education, association. How are these things, how is the, the specialism organising itself and how is it talking to each other? And even, you know, countries like the UK and the US, which before the war had, you know, phenomenal exchange of knowledge of people, of practices going back and forth across the Atlantic, specifically around anesthesia. What then happens during the war is that letters are just not getting through, people are not going on visits. So even if they're allies, even if they're working with each other, that um, exchange of anesthesia knowledge really breaks down. And we see this in, in how the BJA sort of makes it through the war. So what happens during the war, of course, is paper rationing. So um, you have a huge problem where your the amount of paper that you're allowed to use reduces down to a quarter of your previous consumption. Um, and that is a huge problem for anybody involved in the publishing industry. 
You also have the issue that the people who work in print shops are being called up. You know, they're all, they all go off and serve in the army. Um, and so you don't have people printing it. You also have the problem of bombing. Um, the <laughs> British Medical Journal has this, what they call the Phoenix issue, because they managed to get it out more or less on time, even though the printing press was bombed during the production of the issue. Um, so that is when this issue of the BJA not being attached to any external organisation really comes to the fore because you've got huge financial stress. You've got your editorial board who are all, you know, no longer available because they're all off working uh, in the emer emergency medical service, if not in armed forces. Um, but if you are an organization like the BMA, you actually have an increase in members during the war. So your journal circulation increases and you have all of the power of the BMA to plug those financial and staffing gaps. So actually the British Medical Journal does really well out of the war. You know, it faces all of these problems, it's printing press getting bombed, people being called up, but it has that institutional power to sort of plug up those gaps. Something like the BJA is a little cottage industry and it just doesn't have the financial well-being. it doesn't have the, uh, institutional power to prop up the journal during the war years and it really struggles you know they, they don't have much to publish because people are not working on the little side research projects that they're usually publishing what they're actually printing is you know whatever they can extract from people who are really very busy with the war effort and so they have one year they have two issues, the next year they have one singular issue. Um, and this continues not just during the war years when we can expect it, but obviously paper rationing didn't suddenly stop at the end of the war, it really had quite a long tail. And so by the end of the war years, the anesthesia community was obviously well aware of all of these issues that the BJA was facing. And this is when the idea that the association should have its own journal sort of rears its head again, because there is a very legitimate critique that the BJA is not serving its purpose. You know, it would have been a fantastic mouthpiece up until the war years, um, and then is no longer able to fulfill that function and really seems to be on its last legs. And that's when- And can I just ask, what, so during the war, were the, North American journals, which until recently have been in recent decades, the leading journals uh, citation wise, that's obviously changed recently. Um, were they up and about and were they uh, available to anaesthetists in the UK? They were not available to anaesthetists in the UK. So they were up and about purely because it's such a much larger country. The organizations they're attached to, you know, didn't have the financial pressure. There was paper rationing, but not to the same degree. So they're functioning very well within their own environment. But of course, you know, how do you even get journals? You have to send them across on boats that are being U-bombed. You know, the, those, those uh, connections really do break down. Um, but they are in a much better position coming out of the war because they can then, you know, pick up where they left off. And that is when you start to see these kind of the consolidation of that American supremacy because they just haven't suffered in the same way that European anesthesia journals and communities have um, 
during during World War Two. Mm, interesting, uh, and and actually that the paper distribution, although paper rationing obviously <laughs> long over before I took over its a, a, a journal, um, distribution was still a major issue prior to the obviously massive rise now of online uh, journals, we were very dependent upon paper distribution. And when I was at uh, my journal, um, anesthesia was uh, printed, was printed in Singapore, uh, <laughs> flown uh, the most ungreen thing you can possibly imagine, uh, then put onto aircraft, flown around the world and distributed locally by uh, uh, local, local post offices. It was, I, mean, I look back on it now, and we were arguing at the time about whether it was right to move to Singapore or not. And the only argument that never came up was whether it was a really good idea from the point of view of the planet. It was all about cost, and it turned out to be a lot cheaper to publish in Singapore. But paper distribution was a real thing, a real issue. Uh, and if uh, the members of the Association of Anesthetists didn't have the journal lying on their door, the doormat arrival time was very important to me. If it wasn't lying on their doormat before the first of the month, we used to get a lot of complaints and frequently wasn't. <laughs> That's really funny. It, it, it is sort of endearing, though, that they were so concerned about it. Like, at least you knew they were looking for it. So during the, the last years of the BJA with its original publisher, um, they were supposed to be shipping various copies all over, you know, all over the world um, with a big concentration in uh, Commonwealth countries in the US, but you know, really globally. And um, distribution had got so bad that people in the US thought it had ceased publishing because they hadn't received a copy for so long. And that was one of the main arguments for moving to a different publisher was because the distribution was so dire. So this is in the 1970s, of course, but you know, this idea of paper distribution and, and how, you know, we do have this idea of post flying out all over the world in a seamless fashion but actually that just isn't how publishing ever really worked at all um so yeah and then you know, presumably, presumably it was easier in the days in the days when the circulation list that was, was was relatively small i mean so that list held by mrs cohen uh, and obviously guarded guarded fiercely. How many were on it, roughly? Do we know? No idea. So very frustratingly for me, and I think many members of the BGA editorial team as well, those early uh, minutes, everything really before the 1950s is gone. It's missing. It's not uh, not kept anymore. Um, and actually, interestingly, once they did wrestle it off Mrs. Cohen in whatever manner they managed to do it, uh, which is lost to the sands of time. I see, I see, I see, I see the boys from the BJA going around <laughs> there with a heavy mob. <laughs> may, may their incredibly illustrious memories rest in peace with that image. Um, what is interesting is that actually the publishers owned the distribution list, right? So because of this, these agreements that they have with the publishers, the journal is really only responsible for providing 
the content and it's the publisher then who's responsible for getting it out which you know on a on a kind of organizational level makes perfect sense you know nobody was actually employed by the journal they just had honoraria uh, various payments of various types but of course it wasn't a proper job so for that very practical reason the publisher had the distribution list but it does sort of frustrate me because you're then trying to patch up from various minutes and things you know who who was it going to um and they they really did rely once anesthesia had been founded and existed and went automatically you know to every association member they really did rely on that global distribution because of course so many uh, anaesthetists were getting already anesthesia so you really have to make a case for why you would also want the bja um and it's interesting. So when they are sort of busy trying to found anesthesia, paper rationing was still a huge problem. They couldn't find a printer for, you know, a number of years, actually. Um, and very early on in this kind of process of trying to get anesthesia printed, they're dealing with the paper rationing. They're dealing with trying to find a publisher. The BJA is sort of ever slowly struggling on. There were all of these discussions about should we have two journals? Should we just amalgamate them? You know, is it actually useful to have uh, this competition? And I think I really frame it as kind of collaboration or competition. And we absolutely can say that, you know, having two different, they are very different journals, they fulfill different functions. And I think that that is how uh, the anesthesia community is kind of justified the need for two is that they were very different products particularly you know from the 60s onwards um but even in the early days but that wasn't clear at the start right it wasn't obvious that anesthesia would be much more focused on clinical practice and the sort of scientific basic research that the BJA focused on didn't exist <laughs> at that time it wasn't a thing you know, they were both very much full of various anaesthetist musings about, you know, whatever it occurred to them and, you know, case reports and things. So I think, you know, that's where history is kind of useful, isn't it? Because now I think we can see very clearly what the value of having two is, but that just was not clear at the time. Um, and, and as such, you kind of have these suggestions all the way through the 40s, all the way through the 50s. The last kind of recorded instance is in 1959 of people very regularly saying, why don't we just amalgamate them? Why don't we just put them together? You know, and it, it sort of continuously comes up in the association notes that someone has suggested it. And it wasn't even like it was dismissed out of hand immediately. You know, there were very protracted negotiations in 1959 about whether actually the, the two should be amalgamated. And I find well, I mean, that... I can't, I, can't, I can't reflect the, uh, also the, 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 the parent organisation debate as well. There, there were debates, I mean, certainly in my time, uh, as to whether you know, the college and association should join forces. And particularly when the college moved into its new, its new bill, uh, there were big questions then as to whether the, the, whether they should make space for the association in there as well, and at least all operate from the same building. But I think somebody put up the image of of a, a front door with 
Royal College of Anesthetists over it and a little door at the back saying <laughs> Association of Anesthetists. And I think a lot of people never really got past that. And, and so the two organisations have retained their very separate roles. And, and interestingly, the journals still reflect that original split, if you like, between you know, the academic anaesthesia on one side, one journal, and the clinical anaesthesia. Now, of course, it's, it's blended together a bit, but there's still... Um, the, the uh, it was always the belief uh, at the association end of town uh, that that was the journal that would finish would sit on the anaesthesia machine if you walked into an operating theater anywhere in britain and there was a journal on the anaesthetic machine it would be anaesthesia and it wouldn't be the bja because it was the journal of interest to the clinical anaesthetist who wasn't worried about how rats responded to halothane uh, but wanted to know how to anaesthetize their patient. Uh, and to a certain extent, that still continues today, though I think that it's it's kind of become a lot more grey in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. What I think is so fascinating from a historian's perspective, and also someone who worked with midwives and GPs a lot, is that all specialisms face these questions, you know, how should we organise ourselves? what is our vision for, you know, what our purpose is for all these different organisations. And each specialism has decided differently. You know, in, for midwives, there's the Royal College, which is also the association, which is also the trade union, you know, and then you have anaesthesia where they've decided on a completely different kind of setup. And I think it is really interesting because we do especially you know kind of today where um specialisms themselves are breaking down into ever smaller subspecialisms i think there is a real um interesting discussion to be had where we look at the history of different specialisms and say what impact has the choices that each specialism has made had on the kind of identity of the whole, you know, particularly with anesthesia, where you've got an obstetric uh, anesthetist, you've got this whole kind of intensive care side thing going on. And that's when you kind of have to think about, particularly for the history of the 20th century, is what is happening here? What is going on? Because you have something that really genuinely was not a specialism at the turn of the 20th century. You know, you can look back and say, oh, yeah, of course, there were anaesthetists and there absolutely were. But its emergence as a specialism in any kind of organised fashion was not uh, a logical uh, development. It really was something that took place because of the active crafting of, a, of quite a small group of anaesthetists who repeatedly said, particularly to surgeons, you know, this is a, a unique set of knowledge and it deserves to be treated as such. And if it's a unique set of knowledge, then it needs all of the, you know, association, journal, particular education. And so we can look back now and go, of course, anaesthesia is a separate set of knowledge, but that really was not obvious <laughs> at the time. No, no, well, I mean, I, I, and it remained that way. I mean, after all, the, you know, the, the anaesthetists were, were a faculty of the Royal College of Surgeons until not that long ago. It did take a long time. I was always led to believe that it was the, the formation of the NHS and the establishment of, of a standard pay spine for consultants 
that as much as anything led to anaesthesia being recognised as a separate specialty. Is that right? Or was it? I, I would before? say so, absolutely. But I think the crucial question to ask is not whether that was the key moment, but what allowed that to happen? So, you know, you do have in the years immediately before that, you've got the BJA, you've got the foundation of the association, you've got the diploma in anaesthetics, you've got them kind of emerging from World War II, and then you also have uh, Anesthesia, the journal. And I think the question is, why was anesthesia able to be successful in being appointed consultant status when other sort of, are they a specialism, are they not, were not successful and only became specialisms later. And it's my belief that actually all of that collaboration that you have in the pre-war years was essential for getting anesthesia to be awarded consultant status. So um, what happens is that the BMA refuses to take representation from anaesthetists on the question of, um, you know, will we be consultants? Um, But all of the work that, you know, people sitting on the BJA editorial board, obviously the association, lots of people involved in anesthesia of the journal, they actually use their all of the things that they founded in the pre-war years to their advantage. So what they do is during the war, what they had going for them was that there was already a diploma in anesthetics. This is huge. This is really, really significant. If you can show that you have a formal um, educational requirement, a set of knowledge that you can take and prove that you are an appropriately skilled anaesthetist, really it's the existence of that diploma that allows anaesthetists to be accepted as consultants. And the formation of that diploma really uh, has its origins in the early years of the association. And if you look back at the kind of conversations that were being had in the pages of the BJA, you have a calling for the association. And you also have, as soon as the association is founded, the first order of business is we need a diploma. We need a formal, you know, certification in anesthesia. And because they put in, as a community, this huge collaborative effort to get that diploma founded, you then go into the World War II years and you do get a lot of people sitting the diploma. They don't often then use it, actually. They get sent off to do a completely different job in the medical armed forces or the EMS. But you do have this kind of consistent flow of people taking the diploma. So when you get out of the war years, when those conversations about the NHS start to happen, you have two big things working for you. You already have a diploma and lots of people who have taken it. And that allows you to then present yourselves as we are, you know, a clear specialty. We have an association, we have a diploma, we have all of these functions. Um, But they also then are able to use the connections that they made during World War II and leverage them with the government. 
So because various kind of senior figures in anesthesia had been giving the government advice all the way through the war about anesthesia and about medicine, they can then leverage those connections and say, we need a seat at the table. You need to include us. You know us. You know what we can do. And, you know, they're banging on the door and saying, let us in, let us in. And really, I think it's those two factors that allowed anesthesia to advocate for themselves so effectively and be there on that list of specialisms from the very beginning. So I absolutely think that that's a crucial juncture, but I think we have to ask, why were they able to do that when other people were not? And those are the kind of two factors that, that stand out to me anyway. It is interesting, isn't it? Because it, it isn't necessarily the case, as you rightly say, that anaesthesia is going to end up on an equal footing with other specialties. In many other countries around the world, it still hasn't done so. It doesn't seem to me to be uh, a straightforward certainty that's ever going to happen. Uh, as, so, I mean, as a historian, yeah. it's always my job to say it's much more complicated than that, actually. You know, <laughs> you do get a bit <laughs> sick of yourself saying <laughs> Actually, and, and, and so, I mean, obviously, we've got the the importance of the of the of the, the organisation, the association in particular, seems to have been uh, had a lot of, of of clout at this time. And how much of that is down to the fact that there there are there is a, an established journal out there, which I, uh, I think the fact that there were two journals, journals absolutely, yeah. I think that um, the fact that there were two journals is hugely significant, but not in not in um not in necessarily saying we exist you know it wasn't the fact that they existed it's the fact that they can point to an established body of knowledge which is in discussion with the profession and there are other venues for this right it doesn't have to be a journal it can be very well established societies where people go and give talks and there's discussion but really, it's about showing very clearly that the um, specialism itself is producing continuously a body of knowledge that is then put up for what we would now call peer review. But of course, no such term existed at the time. But, you know, where are these forums for sharing knowledge and discussing things happening? Um, and that really is the thing that cements it. Uh, very clearly the, there's all of this sort of sociological literature about what is a professional what is a specialism and how do you recognize it when it uh, presents itself to, to you and you know there's sort of centuries worth of debate about it but the key thing really is under what circumstances is this knowledge produced and is there opportunity for the specialism as a whole to meet and converse and decide on it. And then that obviously feeds into the diploma because you're then, all of that sort of discussion is then feeding into, well, what do we have on the diploma? What actually are the kind of practical skills, but you know, also theoretical knowledge that we think are essential for an anaesthetist. So they really do tie in with each other. And that's why having, you know, the, you I come back again to this idea of, this collaboration was key. If the anesthesia community was not working together, they would not have actually managed to achieve consultant status, I don't think. But then you also need, if not direct competition, you do need spaces and forums for 
discussion and disagreement and they are you know journals provide an absolutely essential form for that today as much as you know in the past yeah but in the um, in the past it, it, it was it, it was the correspondence columns it, what we now call the correspondence columns but it was it was the, it was the argument that they uh, um, uh, often unsupported statements of senior and senior elitists in their profession and so on that filled the pages of these journals, weren't they? Uh, and that made them such an interesting read as well. I mean, you go back to to the, the to the early the early BMJ and I'm sure early BJA as well. And look at it; it's a fascinating read. There's all sorts of stuff there. You think, how can they possibly say that? You know, where's the scientific evidence to support that statement? But they're, they're, in many ways, they're, they're a more interesting read, certainly for the historian, I'm sure, than they may be today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those correspondence columns are always fascinating. You know, at the beginning of the outbreak of World War II, there was the, you know, perennial suggestion that nurses should be allowed to give anaesthetics. Oh. <laughs> it raise its head once again. But, you know, you can kind of see obvious reasons why that would be brought up at this particular junction. And in fact, um, Adam Brooks advertises foolishly, I think, for uh, nurses that will be trained to give anaesthetics. No. And of course, there's absolute uproar. <laughs> of course there is. I mean, I don't know what they thought was going to happen. <laughs> This is in the very early days, you know, when war was kind of obviously on the horizon and just starting to break out. Um, and so the editor of the BGA goes on an absolute rampage <laughs> and writes. Which, 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 which particular one was it? So this is Blomfield. So he's the one, he's a real character and he often acts one minute in one way and then the next minute in another way and so it makes it very difficult for a historian to understand what his actual opinion was um but he, you know he on this issue he is very clear that he thinks this is an absolutely terrible idea but you know we can I find his letters that he wrote in uh, to the British Medical Journal and in you know the BJA very amusing because they are absolutely apoplectic. <laughs> Um, but I think it does sort of raise a flag to this serious issue, which was at this exact juncture, World War II, which has been portrayed in so much of the literature as, you know, really this fantastic moment for anaesthesia, actually it's under phenomenal pressure. In the UK, you do have these forums, you know, he's writing into the British Medical Journal, he's writing complaints to the council uh, that's responsible at Adam Brooks, who sort of you know, nervously type back a reply saying, we don't have any anaesthetists and we need someone to give anaesthetics. Um, but the reality is that all the way through the war outside of the UK, nurses regularly gave anaesthetics and it wasn't deemed to be a problem. Of course they did, because they were the ones who were there. Uh, they and, were course, the front and, and, and in many countries, they still do. Absolutely. Um, so it does, it is interesting because, you know, we can kind of mock him for his tone and his choice of language but the reality is that the you know the idea that anesthesia could only be given by anesthetist was not taken for granted 
at all. And the war was a real challenge to that, actually, for very practical reasons, because they did not have anywhere near the number of anaesthetists that they would have required if they need, wanted every anaesthetic to be given by an anaesthetist. You could, um, be, you, could be, you could be talking about the last 15, 20 years of anaesthetic practice in the UK anyway. That exact course. line could be used. That's remarkable. That hasn't changed at all. I mean, uh, this is the thing about history, isn't it? You just, it's the same questions. <laughs> no. Those who don't understand the lessons of history are doomed to repeat, yeah, doomed to repeat them. Yeah, good Lord. And so how long did... Bloomfield last as, as the editor in chief. Presumably, it was one of those in those days that those were that was a job that you pretty well had from the moment you took it on until you shuffled off this mortal coil. Yeah. So if you look at the editorial board um, during the you know the first fifty years of his existence, it was um, until death. <laughs> Not even until retirement, but until yeah. death was how long you, you sat on the board. And that didn't change until really remarkably recently. He eventually, in 1948, um, hands over the reins. And you have a combination of uh, Cecil Gray, who becomes the next editor. But he, at the time, obviously, was very young. Um, and his, so he also... Um, is alongside a much more senior uh, anaesthetist who name, whose name currently escapes me. But they really do, do a two-hander uh, editorial initial, uh, editorship initially. And that is this time of, you know, those initial conversations about should we just have one journal under the auspices of the association had been put to bed, not permanently, but for the time being. And so there really is this big push to try and get the BJA back up and running um, because anaesthesia is there, it's happening, it's in the game, you know. And then so what you have is this uh, sort of shake up of the editorial board, not necessarily in terms of shuffling off some of the more senior members, but in expanding it so there was case, for, you know, space for new blood. Um, and that is successful in many ways. You know, they work with the publisher, they sort of slowly over a couple of years ramp up until they're publishing monthly. And then they do really make a concerted effort to tap into um, a lot of the new research that's coming out in the post-war period. So obviously you kind of have this huge suppression of knowledge and practice during the war, but you also have some really interesting things happening. Like a lot of people train in giving anesthetics and think it's fantastic. You have a lot of people doing their diploma. You have, you know, obviously new drugs uh, coming out in a really exciting manner. Um, and so- but, but sometimes to quite, to quite, to quite lethal effect. I mean, so, absolutely, yeah, yes, not necessarily improving practice, but the, yeah. the, there, are, there are new drugs. Um, and so there is then kind of a post-war flowering, which coincides with the, you know, getting the consultant status in the NHS, where obviously you then have a huge, really necessary, huge ramping up of the numbers of anaesthetists because suddenly, there's this, you know, stipulated number that every hospital should have of anaesthetists and there aren't any. So, um, and the BJA really sort of makes a genuinely concerted effort 
to um, respond to that challenge. That was a fascinating discussion. Thank you. I hope you will be able to join us for the second part of this history of the journals very soon. The Royal College of Anaesthetists warmly welcomes members from across the globe. So if you're based outside of the UK, we invite you to discover the array of benefits available to you as an RCOA international affiliate. To learn more about joining today and to explore the benefits of membership, simply enter RCOA international affiliate into your preferred search engine or click the link in our show notes. Thank you.